0: this morning comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 37. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you as your assembled people this morning. We praise you for the work that you have done in our hearts. We proclaim along with Psalm 8 that we just sang that how majestic is your name in all the earth. I pray that you would turn our hearts and our minds now to the study of your word. I pray that you would anoint Pastor Jeff to faithfully proclaim it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. How are you all doing? Are you thought out yet? No. <laughs> Me either man, just getting there though. If you have your Bible, <clears throat> you can open to Psalm chapter twenty-three. We will mostly be in that passage today. We're con- continuing our series that we started last week. <clears throat> excuse me, called His Workmanship. And today, uh, we're looking at the Psalm twenty-three that tells us that we are the sheep. We are His sheep, and so the the passage that we just read in Matthew chapter nine. The question is, why does Jesus have compassion? for the crowds? Why does Jesus have compassion for us? And so that, that passage tells us why Jesus has so much compassion for us. Jesus' crowds were helpless to change their social situation. And so what, it's a little bit of background on that. They were harassed in their social life, in their social political life they lived in a highly stratified world of haves and have-nots, like you could not imagine. If you were born into a particular class, if you were born into the agrarian farmer class, or the artisan class, the craftsman class, like a carpenter, or a woodworker, or a stonemason, or something like that, or if you were born into the aristocracy, uh, that's pretty much the class you stayed in for the rest of your life. Now, you could experience downward mobility but you had almost no opportunity to experience upward mobility. And so they were stuck. And so if the powers that be, Rome or Herod, uh, passed laws or enacted laws that affected your life, you could do nothing about that. You had no say over who governed you and what laws governed your life. So I don't mean to say that, that our situation is exactly like theirs ours is exactly the opposite actually but every person experiences times in their lives where they feel helpless or harassed if you've ever had a physical diagnosis that you couldn't change and there was no medical cure for and short of a miracle you know what it's like to feel helpless you know what it's like for something to come into your life and come into your world that you don't have control over and so all of us at some level, in some ways, some spheres of our lives, we experience a kind of helplessness, and Jesus looked on the crowds, and he saw this, and he loved them. He had compassion for them, and they were also helpless to change their spiritual condition. This is, this is a way worse problem to have. Now, they were Israel, and though they were the sons and daughters of Abraham, the, the, the person whom God had chosen... The people of God, the one true people of God in the world, they had the the laws of Moses. They were still sinners, needing saving grace. And as this inner longing within them for peace with God, and Jesus could see it. He could see that they had no ability whatsoever to change their spiritual condition. And so what they lived under is they lived under this legal burden. This ever-expanding regulatory burden of laws, more laws, more laws. Heaped upon even more laws. And so if they had a problem or they had an issue in their lives, the Pharisees had an answer for it. And the answer was, oh, hey, here's a new regulation. And then what made that even worse is that the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus referred to them as hypocrites. Read Matthew 23 or Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus' most favorite, his favorite pejorative for them was the word hypocrite. Because here's what they would do. They would make laws for you, for the populace, for the people, that they didn't have to live under. Because what they would also do is they would make these sort of, create these loopholes that would keep them from having to live under the laws that they made. That, that never happens in our culture, does it? <laughs> you think of insider trading. That's what's going on right now. This actually has been going on for over a decade where legislators in our legislative branch of government, essentially they practice insider trading. Why? Because they have this information. It's legal for them to trade on this information. But if you and I did the same thing that they did, they'd throw us in jail with Martha Stewart for two years. (laughs) Remember that? Yeah, they threw her in jail and John Boehner and Nancy Pelosi, a guy on the right and a lady on the left, were doing the same thing at the same time. And so, when the people who are in charge of making your laws and putting that onerous burden of law upon you don't have to live under them, man, I tell you, people just begin to feel harassed by that. You look at the people who are in charge and you think, these people are not trustworthy. I mean, it's an erosion of confidence, and that's what Jesus is looking at. The hillsides are filling up with people who just feel harassed and helpless, and they can't change their spiritual condition. No amount of laws will change it. Remember the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus, and he said, Teacher, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a very interesting question for a first-century Jew to ask, because he means something very particular. He means, as a son of Abraham who has the law of Moses, what do I have to do? What is the regulatory requirements, the burdens placed upon me for me to inherit Abraham's promise? Life eternal. Life everlasting, the kingdom of God, right? That's what he's thinking. And Jesus responds by telling him something he already knows, that every other rabbi in town has told him a thousand times growing up. Obey the Torah. Obey the commandments. And he says, no, wait. I've been doing that since I was a child, since I was taught the commandments. I've been keeping them religiously, literally, There's got to be something else. Something is missing. You see, he has this need in his heart, and he knows something is missing. And he's helpless to change his spiritual condition apart from Jesus' forgiveness. So what is Jesus' answer? Go rid your life of your God. Get rid of your God. Your money, your possessions, your wealth, and then come back. Now I'm your God. You follow me. And I will lead you into the, to the path of everlasting life. And he goes away sad because he cannot do it. Listen, no matter how rich or free or full your life is, we all know that something. We go through seasons of life where we know something is missing, something is awry, something is not right. And I think this psalm in chapter 23 really addresses some of those issues that emerge in our lives to make us feel this way. I'm going to read it to you, Psalm 23. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Don't read the psalm in any other version, please. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. And he makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table for me, before me, in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Now, this passage is not some nice, trite little poem that you put on a plaque and put on your wall, full of irrelevant platitudes that don't... That, that don't have any uh, relevance for your life. We need to be reminded from this passage of the power of it. And that is, here's the big idea, our confidence as believers is in the Lord. It's in the Lord who is our shepherd. And we know that we are the sheep of his pasture. We are his sheep always under his watchful eye and under his gracious care. And so we're going to take a few minutes to unpack this beautiful, wonderful, powerful psalm. What does this passage tell us about the good shepherd? Firstly, number one, God is faithful to lead us to abundance and safety. That's what that first line means. That God is faithful to lead us to abundance and safety. He says in verses 1 and 2, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why shall he not want? Because God is his shepherd. Because God is the one who provides for him. And what does the shepherd do? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. So look at David's situation. This is not a platitude. This is not just some nice poem. David lived a tough life, man. Scholars are agreed that the psalm was either composed in the Judean wilderness or is composed after 15 years of running and hiding from Saul, his life mentor who was trying to kill him. It was either composed during that period or shortly after that in reflection on that period. He knows exactly what it's like to be a shepherd. David was a shepherd, but David knows what it's like to be pursued, and he knows what it's like to be led by the good shepherd and to be led to green pastures and still waters, hiding in a dry, dry and arid land, singing and composing worship songs against the implacable cliffs of the Judean wilderness. And in the midst, he sings about his God, Yahweh, who is the shepherd leading him to verdant valleys, to verdant pastures and quiet waters. The new grass and the quiet uh, waters answer a restlessness in him. His life is agitated. His life is restless. It is not at peace. And what he says, here's what God has to do. God has to make me lie down in green pastures. Has God ever had to make you lie down? Uh, A few weeks ago... I uh, usually what I do like on a Saturday is I kind of get up and I get up early on a Saturday because I want to go to bed early uh, on Saturday night so I can get a good night's sleep for Sunday and so I get up and I make this list or, or I already have the list done and what I do is I get up about 630 and I get ready and I get my coffee and I sit down and I just kind of drink my coffee, spend a little time with the Lord, fill out my list and then I get crack a lacking. I mean I just get after it. And I look up, and it's, and it's usually like 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. And I just feel good about, getting, about checking projects off, about getting the things done I need to get done. A couple of weeks ago, a couple three weeks ago, I got up on a Saturday. I did that. I sat there with my coffee in hand. And two hours later, I was still sitting there, and I hadn't even drank my coffee. I mean, I, I had the 1,000-yard stare. Because my days are full. I mean, I usually have my days are just scheduled out. And so I, w- I, ju- I was just tired. And I was like, I don't know, man, I got to get to my project. So maybe I'll just take a quick nap first. I laid down to take a quick nap. And I got up and when I looked at my watch, it was 730 at night. I had laid there the entire day, just laid around. And I got up and I was like, that felt so good. like that just felt like having a day of sabbath of rest of just sitting there not having to do anything and you know what god had to make me do that have you ever had those times in your life where god just has to bring you into a place in your life where he says hey 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 listen stop rest lie down in the grass just lay down in the green grass and just, just lay beside the quiet waters and let rest fill your soul. Here's what Jesus said in John 10, 8 through, 8 through 10. He says, all who came before me are thieves and bandits. Who's he talking about right there? Scribes and Pharisees. He's talking about the religious leadership that he's just been sort of uh, haggling with, right? He's just been arguing with them. And he says, now all who came before me are thieves and bandits. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and they'll come come in and go out and find pasture and the thief comes only to steal kill and destroy but i have come that they may have life and have it abundantly notice what jesus says here now in context he's talking about the religious leaders and he's contrasting himself to their leadership he says unlike them they just put onerous laws and burdens and more regulatory stuff on you but unlike them i'm your good shepherd and you'll have salvation through me and guess what i'm not just a shepherd i'm the gate kind of a weird mix of, of metaphors there, isn't it? But ancient shepherds, this is what they referred to. Uh, they were referred to as the gates. Because what they would do is they would corral their sheep at night into a little pen, and then they would have this little opening into their pen, and they would lay across it. They would make their bed across it. So anything coming out at night had to go across the gate, the sheep, the shepherd. And anything coming in had to pass by the gate, the shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. I watch over my sheep. Now, all of us long for two things in life, two. We want abundance and we want safety. We all want that, don't we? I mean, truth be told, nobody's walking around saying, man, I just wish I didn't have enough. I just wish I didn't have enough to pay my bills. No, we all want enough. Like we want abundance, we want our cup to overrun, and we want to be safe in whatever environment or relationship or wherever we, wherever we find ourselves, we want to feel safe. And that's what these metaphors communicate. The green pastures, that's abundance, that's a season of abundance. The quiet waters, if a sheep were to go up to a, a creek or a little ravine, and it was, there was rushing water there, they would run away from it. Because that signals to them that if they fall into it, they can't get out of it. Their wool will just soak up that water and they'll die. They'll drown right there. So they always are led to quiet waters. And did you know that green pastures in Israel are seasonal? Green pastures and quiet waters, still waters, happen in the winter and spring months. The rest of the year, it's dry, it's arid, it's not green. And it's seasonal, and here's what David knows. David knows that this is a season in my life, and there are times in my life when God leads me, he leads me to this place where I can just be restored. And that's what he talks about next. Number two, God is faithful to restore our souls through righteous paths. To restore our souls through righteous paths. Now here in the Psalm, verse three, he says, he restores my soul. And he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. What he's saying here is that God has put his name on the line. God's name is on the line. This is for God's glory and God's name. But what he has said is, God's name is on the line. God is going to take care of me. And what is he going to do? He's going to restore me. And he's going to do so through righteous paths. My father-in-law has a few old cars. And he likes to restore them. He's restored a really nice 41 truck, I think it's a 41 Ford or Chevy, sorry if I'm wrong about that, but a beautiful old truck. And what he wanted to do was to restore it exactly as it used to be. And so he restored it to its original condition. So it's not a hot rod or anything like that, but he has all kinds of new systems in it, like new electrical systems, and he has this cool uh, sort of teak wood bed that he put in the back of it. It's just beautiful. So it is restored to its original condition, but better. Now he's restoring a Mustang, and every time I go over his house, I just think, man, I wish he would just say, you know what, Jeff, this Mustang, this is yours. <laughs> not, not really, but I love going over, and I love seeing this thing, and I saw it when he first got it. He first inherited it from a family member, and then I looked at it when he sort of gutted it, and I looked inside of that thing, and here's what you could see. You could see little glimpses of its former glory, That's paint through the rust And through like the bird's nests and the squirrel nests that are in it, you can see some glimpses of what it used to be. Now, when he's done with it, it'll be restored to its original glory, but it'll be even better. And this is what God does when God restores us. God restores us, but he restores us to better. He restores us to be even even stronger and more capable to walk through the fire. And what was David's situation? It was, in fact, the case with David There's another psalm he wrote in Psalm 31. I want to read you some of the words in Psalm 31. Listen to this. He says, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow and my soul and body with grief. And my life is consumed. Have you ever felt like your life was consumed by something? He says, My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength is failing me because of my affliction and my bones grow weak, but I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Now this is by definition, the definition of a PTSD prayer. And what had he gone through before he wrote this prayer? Another psalm in which he is crying out in the anguish of his heart. Why? Because he was pursued by a man he looked to like his father, a father figure like Saul. He lost his best friend, Jonathan, in war. He lost his newborn baby. He had to join God's enemies, the Philistines, just to survive in the wilderness. One of his sons rapes his daughter, and then another one of his sons goes and kills his other son, and then that son, Absalom, tries to take the kingdom from David. This man has led a life of suffering and loss and hardship, and when he, when he sings a song like this, when he sits down to compose his poem, it's coming out of his heart, a heart of loss, a heart of anguish, and Jesus said this to all of those who are weary from, from a heart that is broken. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, I am gentle and humble and hard, and you will find rest for your souls. How do you find rest for your souls in that passage? How do you do it? Well, you come to Jesus, because he's the only one that could give you rest for your soul. But then when you come to Jesus, you get in the yoke. What is that? It's just that sort of big shaped uh, deal where you put one oxen, a strong experienced ox in one side of it and then a younger, more green ox in the other side of it and you yoke them together. He's saying, come be yoked with me. In other words, you want rest for your soul? Come learn my way. Learn the teachings of Jesus. Learn what he teaches and follow his teachings. Listen, your soul will be restored on a righteous path, not an unrighteous one. And for, and for those who are trying to find and follow an unrighteous path, you will never know rest, the restoration that the Holy Spirit can bring you, the soul that seeks life in the turbulent waters of political acrimony, or seeks life in the dying or burned over meadows of pleasure seeking, or seeks the compromise of woke Christianity just to be at peace with others. That soul will be in a state of unrest, of agitation, and will not be restored, will not experience restoration. Listen, if you're following an unrighteous path, I'll put this on the screen, then your soul won't be restored, nor will it be restful. It can't be. Because restoration is in the paths of righteousness, the teachings of Jesus, the Word. And number three, He accompanies accompanies us through dark seasons in life. He accompanies us through dark seasons in life. Now, we said that green pastures and quiet waters is seasonal in Israel. And there are other seasons that David went through. And some of the seasons that he went through were just dark valleys. There were dark times, as we just looked at. Verse 4. Here's what he says in verse 4. He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What does it mean to walk through death's valley? Or the valley of shadows, of death's shadow? What does that mean? Well, that, that metaphor is kind of simple. It just means that as he's walking through this season in life, there are times in David's life where he felt like death was at his doorstep. In fact, it was so close that it could have just taken him at any time. In fact, it was so close that it cast a shadow over his purpose, over his hope, over his joy, over his calling and his his calling to be king. And so that's kind of what that means. And he knows what it's like for God to lead him to verdant pastureland. He knows what it's like for God to lead him to still and quiet waters to restore him through righteous paths. And he also knows what it's like for God to lead him in times when it feels impossible it feels like nothing is going right. Jesus said this in John 10, 10 through 11. He said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. He says, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's the best news you could receive from Jesus. The good shepherd lays down his life for you. The good shepherd puts himself in the way Of those who are trying to attack you and trying to take your life and look at what he says here he says the thief comes the thief will come the thief is going to come and so that's inevitable dark valleys will come but he says don't worry because I am with you as your shepherd and he says yay yay that's a 400 year old word Today, that means yay, but that's not what it means in the King James when the King James was written in 1611. That's not what it meant. It means yes, indeed, for sure, dark seasons are going to come, and Jesus will walk you through them. And so what does he say is the reason why he can get through this dark valley because he will have no fear. And what's the basis of not having fear? Well, because thou art with me. Because God is with me. Um, I remember when, uh, when I was a teenager, tur- well, I, turned- I was a preteen, turned 12 years old, and uh, I was at this uh, festival in my hometown. It was called Goochland Day, and it was-, it was a parade, it involved a parade, and it was just an all day event. So it was an all-day event of just like little booths where you would go and spend some money, and it was just fun. And at the day, at the end of Guchin day, you come home and you're just exhausted. And I remember after the parade, uh, some of our neighbors, we were like the Hatfields and the McCoys. And so some of our neighbors who lived uh, down the street from us, we were constantly uh, fighting with them. Like we were just constantly in uh, knock-down, drag-out fights with these people. And... Um, and the boys that lived in that home were just a couple years older, a few years older than me and my brother. And so I remember being at Guchland Day and the boys that lived in that home had gotten all their friends together and they surrounded me at Guchland Day and they were threatening me. They were cursing at me and telling me they were gonna knock me out and all this kind of stuff. And so I made a beeline to the only phone that I knew where it was. It was a phone booth. For those of you who don't know what that is, a phone booth <laughs> is a man-sized box you go in, it has a little door, you go in, and there's a phone there, and you have to use what's called a dime, right? It's changed. You put it in, and then you have to dial your number, right? right? You have to dial your number. My dad just happened to be sitting there by his phone. So my dad picks up the phone, and he's like, yeah. I'm like, Dad, uh, uh, Timmy and David are here. They're with their crew, and they're threatening to beat me up. He said, where are you? I said, I'm at the high school where the phone booth is. He goes, I'll be right there. And he got there probably in five minutes. He was there so fast. Now, what I thought was going to happen is that my dad would just get out of his car. Like, he, he comes, he pulls up in his 68 Camaro, he gets there. And I thought what was going to happen is he would get out and just give him what for. I thought, yeah, my dad, man, he's going to tell him to get out of here. But what my dad did is he, he, he pulls in his 68 Camaro, he screeches to a halt, and then he gets out of the car and reaches in the back seat and gets two Louisville Slugger baseball bats. And he walks through the circle where they, they're standing around me. He walks through the circle and he hands me one and he takes one. He's like, Here, here's yours. And then he steps in front of me and in very colorful language, uh, he addressed them and he convinced them to disperse and go away. And they did. I'm not going to tell you what he said to convince them. Can't say those words in church. And so I'm standing there, and they start dispersing. I'm like, "Yeah, that's right." And then we get back in the car. He tells me, "Get in the car." We put the bats in the back seat, and then he just squeals out of there, just peels out of there. And they're all still kind of standing there in the field, just sort of dispersing. And as we drive by, I look at all of them. I'm like, "Like, <laughs> I'm just like, that's right." Now, I felt weirdly comforted by my dad being there with those two bats, and so when David says, I'm comforted by his rod and his staff, the rod is a club that shepherds would make with a pointed, uh, with a sharpened uh, end on one end, and then a ball on the other end that they coated in pitch, and they would use it to whack predators with. One of the sticks, the rod, is for your enemies, but the other stick is for you. It's the staff. And they would take a ram's horn, and they would put it on the end of a staff, and they would use that to catch sheep that were darting away and bring them back into the fold. And so this is what David is saying. He's saying, I'm comforted by the fact that my God brings a big stick, two of them, one for my enemies to fight off my enemies and the other one for me to keep me on the straight and narrow. And so Jesus put himself between us and harm's way. And as the good shepherd, he has laid down his life on a cross for our sins, and you and I have confidence in him. And number four, he reminds me of Christ's victory. Well, he reminds me of Christ's victory. This is, I think, what verse five means. Verse 5 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. My cup runs over. It spills over. The imagery in the psalm has turned now from the Lord Yahweh, who is our shepherd, to Yahweh, who is our dinner host. And this is what ancient Near Eastern kings did. Look at this in 2 Samuel 3.20. It says, when Abner... Who had 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. David prepared a feast for him and all of his men. Why is that weird? Why does that seem strange? Who is Abner? Abner is Saul's cousin, Saul, who was trying to pursue him and kill him, and also his commander in chief. So here this guy knows, this is at the end now, Saul is dead, Jonathan is dead, and he senses the political winds are shifting, and he knows he must go to David and say, David, and bring the glad tidings, the good news, the kingdom is yours. The kingdom belongs to you, and the people up north, the king, the kingdom down south, they're all ready to consolidate under your rule and under your reign. And this is the news that he brings. So what does David do? as a result of this good news. To re, as a reception, he throws him a feast. He actually sets a table in the presence of his enemies. And this is what ancient Near Eastern kings did. They would ha- hold a giant feast going into battle and then one coming out of battle to commemorate their victory, to celebrate their victory. And this is what the table is. The table is a celebration of the fact that even though we're in the midst of our enemies and we're surrounded by darkness on all sides, and we actually have a sinful nature that's trying to drag us out and entice us not to walk with God, the good news is Christ is victorious. Christ has died on a cross and risen from the dead, and he has defeated sin, death, hell, and the devil. And we are in Christ. Uh, 1 John 5, 4 through 5 says this, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. Now, are you going to walk out of church today and go conquer the world? No. You're going to walk out of here and conquer the world system, the system of the world that is bent against you, that that is bent toward your demise. And he says, this is the victory that has conquered this world system, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world system but but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, the table is prepared in the midst of my enemies, those spiritual forces in high places set against me, the temptations of the flesh from within me, the world system that threatens to swallow me up and absorb me into its bloodstream and and totally change the strength and the power of my faith, but then the table is set to remind me of His victory over all of that. And so this is what the table that we're going to sit at today in communion, this is what it really means. And I love the symbol of the oil, this sort of refreshing oil in a dry and arid land, an image of a flask of sweet oil poured over David's black coils of dry hair in the desert. It's a symbol of refreshing glory. An overrunning cup of gladness in the midst of heartbreak and hardship what a beautiful picture. This is what God does in the midst of our hardship. And we are reminded we, we are God's sheep, his guests of honor at the table of Christ's victory. We are God's sheep, the guests of honor at the table of Jesus's victory. Number five, he leads us into a legacy of, of godliness and the assurance of heaven. Verse six, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a great line. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell with the Lord in his house forever. What a great hope. What a great promise. What had been following David? What was following him? Saul. Saul and Abner and all their armies, and they were trying to kill him. And if you read through that whole story, you'll find that that whole time that Saul and Abner were trying to pursue him and chase him down, it is filled with tragedy. The whole story is just filled with all kinds of, of stuff that you go, wow, I can't believe a person went through that in one lifetime. And it's very difficult to read. And so you get to the end of it, you realize what had been following David, in a sense, was tragedy. And sometimes what followed David in his life was failure. Sometimes he sinned against the Lord. He actually failed, and that's what followed him. But what does he say here? This is what's going to follow me: goodness and mercy. In other words, this is what I'm going to leave behind. And so the principle is this: it's very simple, is that whatever you feel like is pursuing you, whatever's after you, whatever's out to get you, whatever forces of darkness are set against you, here's what you can know that the testimony of your life can be the goodness and the mercy of God. When I die at my funeral, people are going to talk about two things. This guy had a dad who brought bats. Like this guy had some rough times in his life, some seasons in his life that were very challenging to his faith and very challenging to his strength. But this is the testimony. God was good. God was merciful to me. And this is what David is saying. No matter what pursues me, no matter what is after me, here's what I leave behind. I leave behind a legacy of godliness and also the assurance of heaven. It's not just about what I leave behind, it's what I'm going to. Because I know I'm going to the house of the Lord forever. Now, nobody goes to the tabernacle. He didn't even have a temple. Nobody goes to the tabernacle because, like, I'm just going to sleep here. Unless you're the high priest. That's not what David is saying. David knows that he is going to the house of the Lord, the kingdom of God, eternal life forever. And here's Paul's promise to us. Here's what the word says in First 1 Thessalonians 1:4. 1, it says, "For we know, brothers and sisters, we know this: that we are loved by God. That He has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. Notice that the gospel comes in word. It's a true message." The gospel comes with propositional truths that are true, but it's not just word only. It's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is what he says. This is the key to our assurance. Our full assurance is in Christ, the fact that he chose me and I didn't choose him, the fact that he loved me before I loved him, the fact that he, he picked me while I was still a sinner and an enemy of God, and the Holy Spirit whose presence is in my life to change me from the inside out, to give me the power to walk with Christ, to take Christ's yoke, to follow his word. So even though the forces of darkness have been pursuing my life, I'm going to leave behind a testimony, a story of God's goodness, his grace, and his mercy, and his truth. And we have this promise.